Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Um, so, I guess I should kind of be in the center, shouldn't I? Okay. Um, anyway, so last night when I couldn't sleep, when I was nervous about this talk, um, I, was, I was reading this book by J.F. Powers uh, about a priest who has these grand visions about who he's going to become and like that he's going to change the world in his parish and um, and he's pretty good at it but then like the the hierarchy the church hierarchy uh, sends him off to this monastery and so like all the work he's been doing is for naught and the opening quote is by this person J.M. Barry who I've never heard of before but the quote is is simple it's just this the life of every man is a diary in which he means to write one story and writes another. So this talk is, is called Brand New Me, Instagram Lives, and the Promise of the Cross, and I'm really actually not going to talk about Instagram too much. It's sort of just an opening point to then talk about um, how we project our story to people and how we tend to want a certain story in our lives and that that story is not often the truth about our lives. Um, so it could also be called brand me, not brand new me, but brand me, or uh, happy stories sad people tell, <laughs> or enjoy your illusion. Um, but it's, it's interesting that already, you know, this is the third talk, and... If we're ever talking about story, the story we want to talk about is me, you know, my story, and uh, the way that I think about my life, and the way that I tell my story to the world around me, and, um, and it's, it's not just the big decisions we make, it's not just the career choices or the spouses that we choose to spend our lives with, um, or the places we move to. But it's also these, these very small, everyday decisions that we don't know we're even making. You know, like, am I a Wall Street Journal person? Or am I a New York Times person? Or do I read it all? And um, do I feel like I'm the guy who will pay $40 for a beard trimming? Or am I the person who will go to Burger King and have this Double Ranch Baconator for lunch? Or am I the type of person that has this, you know, spirulina, flax, whole grain, wheat berry juice, you know? And we use these, like, small little decisions to help us sort of shape in our mind and in the world around us that, like, okay, this is my stake in the ground. I'm this type of person. Um, and these questions, they're, they're identity questions, and at least... Uh, with Mockingbird, the way that we talk about identity is really the question of who am I and um, what is my story? What, what describes me? Who am I? Um, and as Bobette said yesterday, uh, talking about a story, uh, telling our story is a huge part of culture. It's not just a, a Christian thing. I mean, it's, it's everywhere. We have... Um, you know, car companies and news industries and clothing brands that are, are advertising their story and asking us to become a part of it. Um, you know, as in the motion pictures, uh, we, we see that there are stories that are, 
uh, aspirational. You know, we see these characters that we want to become, that we resonate with. Um, and it is a part of Christian spirituality as much as it is a part of self-help psychology. You know, um, your life is a story. It is your job to tell the story that you want to tell. So get out there and tell it. And, um, and of course, like as social media has become such a part of our lives, and this is pretty much all of Instagram I'm going to talk about, but um, it becomes, at a, at a ridiculously quick rate, we can tell our stories, um, and we can project those stories to everyone. Anybody is a celebrity now. You know, we can, we can tell our friends within nanoseconds of what we've just done, what we're doing. And uh, we can show them sort of the story that we're weaving for our lives. And we can also provide real-time detail for those stories. But at the same time, like, we smile about that because, like, those stories aren't exactly true. You know, like, uh, we don't Instagram, like, the trip to Target or, um, you know, like, the moment when, like, I don't know, you, like, wake up and you smell bad, you know. Instead, we... We relay these Instagram moments that capture the lives that we want to be living. And in Mockingbird circles, we, we call this self-justification. That, that so often the stories that we want to tell are really just ways of justifying to the world, this is the me that, that I am I'm showing to you. This is, this is the me that I am. And, and of course, we all do that. We do that in our conversations with people. Technology has just provided all these new avenues for how to promote the self and promote the story that we want to tell. Um, so there's, there are these two commercials. Um, you've probably seen them uh, done by American Express. And it shows this woman who's got this like super cool job. She's a photographer. And she's like flying to Europe. And she has a layover in Reykjavik. Iceland, you know, because we all have layovers in Reykjavik. And, and while she's got this layover, she's like, well, I've got thousands of followers, so I need to, like, tell people what I'm up to. And so she, like, gets on a duck boat. She, like, goes and sees, like, the sheep of Iceland. Uh, she buys some sweaters. She eats this ridiculously gourmet fish meal. And, and she Instagrams it all. And by the end, she's back on the plane to Europe onto the next moment that she's going to capture and I guess what we're supposed to take from that moment is, man, what a life, you know? And, like, American Express is going to allow me to sort of live this life that, of course, I already live. But, <laughs> but instead, at least for me, the way I see that image is, like, what an exhausting way to live. I mean, this is a layover. You're supposed to, like, nap, you know? <laughs> and, and instead, she's, she's like you know, she's completely unflustered by the fact that she's, you know, she's just been flying for eight hours. And, and then there's this, also this moment at the end where she's, like, under a waterfall, and she's got this awesome back tattoo, you know, and I don't know how she Instagrammed it. She must have had a photographer with her, but anyways. And the whole idea is, like, spontaneity, right? Like, in Instagram, like, and with selfies and whatever, we, we have these moments where we take a picture and it's like, look at me being spontaneous, doing this thing I love. And, and instead, it's so curated, right? I mean, it is, it, we've, we sort of we filter out the things we don't want to show and we show the things we want to show 
to create the picture of ourselves we want to be seen. Um, and so speaking of spontaneity and wanting to capture that spontaneity, the first clip I want to show is from a show called Portlandia. Anybody? Cool. So this is kind of what I think is happening behind the scenes with this like Reykjavik ad. Um, so can we go ahead and show that? A trip to Italy. What? Me and you are going to Italy. When? Today, tonight. That's crazy, okay. Wow, really? I just was not like, oh, let's just... Whatever, okay. Isn't this only your third date with her? Yeah. We went on a couple dates, it works. Two dates. Now this is like a romantic move. What, am I gonna keep going on these little dates? Like, go up to Mount Tabor, have a picnic. I wanna like, take a chance. If you wanna take a chance. Don't worry. Okay. Okay, I'm gonna send you pictures, both of you. Right? Not, not yes, a bad idea. no, I wish someone would invite me on a trip to Italy. Okay. You got everything? <laughs> you look really cute. Oh, for too long when we get in because there's like a lot of activities and stuff. Yeah, I'll be fine. I'll be fine. Yeah. Yeah. Italy. Mm -hmm. Uh-oh. Checking passports. I hope you haven't done any crimes. <laughs> I did bank robbery. Oh, really? You're such a funny guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so your sister, you're saying, is from... Vermont, right? Yeah. You said? Yeah. So nice. It's really pretty. Hmm. I guess this is the bathroom. Maybe sand on the toilet to go to the shower as well. They should put the lamps in there. Right? I'm really tired. Is that okay? Sleep time. Okay. okay. And then we'll both take a shower. I'm kidding. <laughs> no. Yeah. I'm not there yet. No, I know. Yeah. I was totally joking around. Maybe we can rent scooters too. Someone, my friend told me that we can rent scooters if it's on Mespas. like six grand. What's wrong with you? Hey! Hi, welcome back. Wow. Wow. <laughs> what are you looking at? Oh my gosh, your Bodo album? Oh, I should take those down. Really? Mm -hmm. Everyone on the internet, they're not having as great a time as you think they are. I guess people are just cropping out all the sadness. 
All right. Uh, I'm gonna go scream into my pillow for a little while. <laughs> oh, it's so awesome. If you want modern-day parables, it's Portlandia. Um, but yeah, that moment where she says, you know, I guess, I guess people on the internet, they're just cropping out the sadness. It's so true. I mean, and I don't want to harp against spontaneity. Like, I totally believe in, like, spontaneous living. I think it's totally the fruit of the gospel uh, when we've, like, when we've felt free enough to just, like, leave the script and do something that is, that is fun or something that, that is just off the seat of the pants is, is a beautiful thing. But this is so obviously not spontaneity. You know, it's so obviously kind of like we've been dating a while and this is like the spontaneous us that like we do these things it's so crazy and fun and they have needed to live according to the master narrative that they've sort of told themselves. And, um, you know, Portlandia is so great because it, it totally catches a glimpse of um, the millennials, you know, like people my age who grew up in the 90s in this sort of, uh, in schooling that had the sort of R. Kelly space jam, I believe I can fly, you know, like, believe it, achieve it, you are a shooting star, like, you are so special, and like, it's just a matter of time before you show us, like, how you are going to wow us, and, um, and of course, like, no one, no one thinks about distinguishing themselves. Like, no one thinks about their specialness being portrayed as, like, you know, the, the help desk at Verizon. Or, or being, like, I don't know, anything but, like, Michael Jordan or, um, you know, Albert Einstein or Michael Phelps, you know, like we were talking about yesterday. Um, always you become this mind-blowing new paradigm of a human being, you know, you are always this, this special creature, you know, um, so it's a little embarrassing to talk about, and I told my wife I was going to tell this story, and she was like, you should not tell that story, <laughs> but um, when I was in elementary school, my, uh, my third grade teacher asked us to draw a picture and describe the person we could be if we could be anybody else which is, like, totally messed up, if, if you think about it, you know? It's like, you are a shooting star, but here, tell me about the person you would be if, you know, maybe you could be someone else. Um, and so, me being this, like, really, uh, you know, had this, like, you know, fro, I always wanted to be, like, and I had this person in mind. His name was Sean Davis. That was the name I gave him. And it was spelled like Seen, S-E-A-N. And, uh, and Sean Davis had like the classic 90s butt cut, you know, like the, the like beautiful wave of hair. It was like this. And, uh, and in the picture, you know, he's wearing like a, like a Reggie Miller uh, Indiana Pacers jersey. And then he's got like a flannel shirt uh, on top of it, kind of baggy, you know. And then he's got the... Um, the snapback hat turned backwards, and he's just so cool, you know? And I realized that actually it was just uh, Jonathan Taylor Thomas. There's a picture that may show up. But, I mean, ma mainly I think that's, that's not JTT. There he is. When was the last time you thought about Jonathan Taylor Thomas? 
Yeah, <laughs> yesterday, right. Yeah, yeah, JTT for life. So I also thought about the, the guy, Sean. This is probably actually who it was, but Sean from Boy Meets World, who had the same butt cut. He's kind of like this, this kind of like badass guy, you know. He like had drop deadbeat parents, and he basically just lived with Corey, you know, just got to live with his best friend. Um, but I really just wanted to have the hair. I just wanted the butt cut. Um, but anyways, I, I didn't have to think about Sean Davis. Like, it was naturally in me. And, and whether that's, like, whether that's just uh, bad parenting from my parents or, or original sin, whatever you want to call it, I had no problem, uh, and it didn't take me any amount of time to picture an idealized Ethan as a third grader, you know, and, and I don't think that's just a 90s thing, I think that's just a human thing, that we, we do have an idealized uh, picture for ourselves, and, and so, I don't know, I mean, you might hear from someone that this is, all right, the Sean Davis, of course, we all wanted to be Michael Jordan when we were kids, and that project, eventually you realize you're not going to be a pro athlete, and Sean Davis has to die. Um, which I get, but at the same time, if I'm honest with myself, Sean Davis is more alive than ever, you know. In, in fact, like, I have more nuanced Sean Davises than ever before. Because as I've grown older, there are so many more articulations of a person I would love to be uh, than, than I, when I was young and just thought JTT was getting girls. <clears throat> so, if you will indulge me, I'm going to run through some of my Sean Davis prototypes for, for 2016. You, you already saw the first one. True Detective fans? Anybody? Okay, so this is, I mean, we're in Texas. This is, uh, this is Louisiana, but this is Rust Cole, Sean Davis. This is my time as a flat circle, true detective, Sean Davis, the poet, philosopher, alcoholic, Sean Davis. Um, <laughs> He's rough around the edges, but he never says anything that isn't really confusing and really deep. <laughs> he's, like, he's like the Western motif of John Wayne, but he also has this kind of suicidal complex. <laughs> and like, I've always, I've always just sort of romanticized this dark edge, you know? He's so, he's so disgusting looking, but at the same time, it's like, oh, he's just, he's just got so much bravado and so much wisdom. Uh, but at the same time, he drinks like eight beers in, in, a, in, in just a conference room. All right, so <laughs> I think I've always romanticized this dark side because as a, like, as a person, I'm way too nice, and I just tend to smile all the time at people. So I've always romanticized this, this dark edge. All right, next one. Yeah, Anthony Bourdain. Anthony Bourdain, Sean Davis. Uh, this one's on the wane. I feel like I definitely wanted to be him in college, um, but it's still there. This is the world-traveling, thrill-seeking, c'est la vie, Sean Davis. Uh, the kind of guy who can, you know, be helicoptered into a tribal village, try some ayahuasca, try some monkey brains, and then, like, fly to a random town in Italy and know, like, exactly where to get, like, fresh octopus and uh, the best bottle of wine. So... That's Anthony Bourdain, Sean Davis. Paul Rudd. Paul Rudd. Everybody loves Paul Rudd. And this one, 
is so powerful um, <laughs> because I know he's just so lovable. I mean, he's and he's like uh, this is sort of the Sean Davis archetype that everyone wants to be around. He's such a nice guy. Like everybody wants to have him over to dinner. Uh, he's kind to man, woman, and child. That's and and that sounds like yeah, of course everyone would want to be that way. But this one's very powerful. Uh, strangely enough, the nice guy. All right. All right. You may not know this person. This is this is Wendell Berry, Sean Davis. I'm a Kentuckian. Uh, grew up in Lexington. This is like the agrarian back to the like back to the homeland. Sean Davis. This is the one who sort of like is, you know, he could he could be in New York City making moves, but instead he stayed home and like and decided to like uh, raise his family where he grew up and was true to his roots and became a philosopher poet in his hometown. And everybody calls him like the American man of letters. So this is the mixture of wisdom and like I have the dignity to stay home and not go anywhere. All right, next one. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of funny that it's after Wendell Berry, but at the same time, who doesn't want to be hated as much as Gwyneth Paltrow because you're just so naturally elegant? Like, you, you can do nothing. You can sell a mud soap bar, and people will buy it because you are Gwyneth Paltrow. All right, next one. Because we're in Texas... Everybody wants to be Tim Riggins. I mean, he's sort of like the apogee of them all, you know? And he has the butt cut. So it all comes back to the butt cut, Tim Riggins. All right, that's all of them. And to be honest, it doesn't even come close to covering it. I mean, these are just a few of these filters that I project to the world, you know? Like... Uh, my wife and I, we live on this 300-acre farm, and so there's so many opportunities for me to Instagram these shots of, like, Wendell Berry, Ethan, you know? Or, um, and I work for uh, Mockingbird, so I do website literary stuff, and so I get to project the sort of literary side of Ethan. Um, I don't get to be Russ Cole too much, but, um, but at the same time, these, like, master narratives... Um, we continue to redraw new ones. And, and it doesn't just have to be celebrities. I mean, it can be the people you're around every day, you know, the people that you're friends with. And it can also be the anti-types, uh, kind of like the opposite of the redemption story that we talked about yesterday. You can, you can see people or have grown up around people and say, I'm never going to be like my mother. You know, I'm never going to be this person. And... And we live in, in opposition to a certain archetype. Um, and so at Mockingbird, we talk about the law a lot. And these are, these are kind of what we would call little L laws. Like the, the laws that we feel uh, we must live by to measure up. And, and if we don't measure up to them, uh, then what if we, where's our righteousness? Um, so quickly, and don't raise your hand or call them out, but just think, like, what are, what are your archetypes? What are, can you, can you name three? Are there three, like, people that come to mind that you can think of, of, like, yeah, totally. I mean, they could probably, everybody wants to be Tim Riggins. But, but what are they for you? Who are they for you? 
But at the same time, it's interesting because we draw these pictures in our heads of who we ought to be. And, um, and some of them are conflicting. I can't be both Anthony Bourdain and Wendell Berry. Wendell Berry, by definition, stays home. Anthony Bourdain doesn't have a home. His home is the world, you know? And, and so once you put them all in a list like this, it seems totally ridiculous that you could ever measure up in, in all these ways. And at the same time, on the flip side, like, you are so much more than one of these archetypes. Like, you are so much more than, like, I can't be Wendell Berry any more than Wendell Berry can be me. Like, the, the, the complexities of me and of you are so beautiful and dynamic, and, and none of these archetypes could ever, could ever come close to capturing them. So we have these, we have these like, alluring storylines and images and character traits, but at the same time, we are one human being with emotional needs and longings that cannot be captured by any one character. Um, but it doesn't change the fact that these storylines loom large. I mean, we tend to think about our lives in conditional terms with achieving them. That's why they are sort of the little L law. Um, if I could just blank, then I would be this. You know, if, if I weren't so, you fill in, um, then I would be able to X. So I want to... Uh, to kind of give a glimpse of this, I want to show this. Uh, it's a couple clips, but this first one. Um, does anybody watch the 30 for 30 series that ESPN does? They're amazing. And this was one of the first ones, I think, before they even actually started the series. But um, this is one called Unguarded, and it tells the story of Chris Heron. Uh, Chris Heron's on the right, and he's a Massachusetts-bred uh, basketball phenom. And he grew up sort of in a Dillon, Texas kind of town, Friday Night Lights, where he had these colossal expectations put on him. He was like sort of the white knight of the town. Uh, his, his family were all elite basketball players. He came on the stage and, and completely dominated. And everyone thought, like, Heron's going to be the one that gets out of town. And, and he did. He, um, he played college ball, and then he, he wound up... Um, years later, like starting for the Boston Celtics. It's like the, he has arrived, you know? He's like married to his high school sweetheart, he's playing for the Boston Celtics, and he's got a baby boy on the way. And at the same time, what it took to get him there, the expectations that were put on him, um, he's got so much that he's, he's had to take on to deal with the expectations. So um, he's, he's struggled off and on with addiction. And, and what we see is someone who's arrived at the storyline that he's written for himself, and we're left wondering, like, what's missing? So without saying anything more, let's, let's watch this clip. Growing up right down the street is uh, it's an amazing thing. It's for this day to come. Uh, you know, I dreamed about this a long, long time ago as a little kid, so I can't say enough about it, you know? It was disaster. You know, give a kid with a put a kid with a raging drug problem with unlimited access to it. That was, that was a death sentence, the Celtics. Fellas, I grew up with Larry Bird, Kevin McHale, DJ, Parrish. I pretended I was them. 
I worked my whole life to be them, and now I'm here in a press conference holding up my number with Celtics on it. And all I'm thinking about is, dog, I got to get in touch with this dude because I'm dope sick. I can't even tell you where the press conference went off. I can't even tell you who was on the side of me because all I was worried about is how am I going to get in touch with this oxy dealer? When Chris was traded to Boston, I felt so excited and happy that we were going to be around family. I was so optimistic about coming back. And that's how, you know, naive maybe I was. I would tell Heather, you know, I'm going to stay after practice. I'm going to get some jumpers up. And I would gun it to Fall River to go meet some guy. And then fly back to Waltham and act like I just got out of practice. It's crazy. Drugs were maintenance. They went to have a good time. They went to go out and party. They were so he could function. Without that, he can't play. So it's this kind of secret life. But the amazing irony of all this, he plays well. He was able to play well in NBA games while he was an absolute junkie, basically. Uh, it's incredible. I remember it was my second game for the Boston Celtics. Family sitting in the stands, wife, kids. And my Oxycontin dealer isn't picking up his phone. Finally, he picks up and says, listen, man, I'm running late. I'm not going to get there in time. Well, if you don't get here, I ain't playing. And if you don't get, if you don't get here, there's 15,000 people in that arena right now, my wife, my kids, my mother, my father, my brother. And I'm starting. And there's 20 minutes on the clock. And I'm looking at the clock. And there's 18 minutes on the clock. And he says, listen, I'm going to be there in about 10 minutes. I leave Walmarts. I'm outside in my sweats, in my uniform. I watched all the people come in the fleet center as I stood outside on the corner in my Celtic stuff in the rain, waiting for him to deliver my Oxycontin. I finally get my pills. I run back into the arena. Four minutes left, introduce him from Fall River, Massachusetts, Chris Henry, and I take the floor. Played that game, started that game, won that game. And when I was walking off the court, I had the ball in my hands and I had my hand up in the air. And I was on the front page of the Boston Herald and the Boston Globe. The next day I woke up, my wife happy to show me the picture. I jumped in my car, went right back to my dope dealer. I think that year was an absolute nightmare. Here's Chris Hearn from Fall River, a Massachusetts kid who's playing for the Boston Celtics. That's the public perception. And yet, he's going through hell. He's, he, he's got the beginnings of a big-time addiction that no one knows about back then. Certainly, I didn't know about it. His wife didn't know about it. And that has to be hell, doesn't it? That's be the definition of hell, basically. He's living a lie. And I think everything back then was to keep the lie going. I had a knee injury. That knee injury sidelined me for a little bit. I was released by the Celtics. Okay. 
Um, yeah, I mean, it's just amazing, isn't it, that <clears throat> like the arrival of a story, a, a storyline that uh, someone like an NBA basketball player can craft for themselves, that the arrival at that moment uh, is not a moment of, of laurels, but a moment of pulling it off, it, telling a lie, you know, and that you can, you can be where you always saw yourself being and feel like a total fraud. Um, and, and it's all because uh, we tend to have this unbelievable optimism about our storylines. We have, we have such an optimistic take on um, what our lives can become and, and that we know what's best for us, you know. Um, and the Bible's full of these stories. I mean, look at the doofus disciple Peter, you know. Like, how many times ha- is he totally sure that he's, like, um, that he's the greatest disciple. He's like, yeah, Jesus, I'm coming out to you. And he steps off the boat and he sinks, you know. And, and, and then he says, you know, Jesus, I would never, I would never deny you. And of course he does. And, um, and then Jesus tells the story about um, the parable, the storehouses, you know, the, the guy who grows so much grain. He's so hashtag blessed that, <laughs> that he's like, well, I got to build a bigger storehouse, you know, like I'm killing it and I'm going to just sit back and chill because like, look at me. And, and the parable ends with Jesus saying like, you were way too optimistic about your story. Like your life is demanded of you now. And so what is that storehouse doing? And his life, his story was as impermanent as, as the weed itself that he was trying so hard to keep alive. Uh, keep stored. Um, and it, it's, in, it's in real life, too. I mean, um, I watch The Bachelor. Don't judge. <laughs> and all you have to do is watch one episode of The Bachelor to see, like, all of these girls have, um, have the highest hopes. Like, this is my Prince Charming. You know, like, we have a really strong connection. I just feel it. <laughs> and, and, like, 29 out of the 30 girls are completely heartbroken, you know? March Madness, like all 64 teams except for one will be disappointed by the outcome. Michigan State, whoops. Um, So, and you also hear this in Christian circles. I mean, we are the worst when it comes to it. You know, like, have you heard this? Like, yeah, I mean, we're going through a hard time, but God's sovereign. Um, Or, like, you know, it's hard, but it's good. And... Um, I really feel like God's teaching me dependence right now. Like, I just really feel like I need to be dependent on him, and that's what he's telling me to do. And, and it, it ends up feeling like it's a stopgap to suffering. Like, we are, we're confused about the suffering that we're experiencing, and in order to stop the suffering, uh, we hold on to a script that we think might be able to help us navigate it. Um, and then other times, like Chris Heron's story, we're actually, um, we're actually the villains to our own story. You know, we self-destruct. We have this storyline, and, um, and it's not just about lack. It's not about, well, I, I could have been this, but I was too short. It's like, no, you had the talent, and then you threw it away. Um, and so in that, in that scenario, which we all have, uh, it's not about lack, it's about guilt, you know, you had an opportunity, you had a responsibility, and you blew it. Um, and in either category, 
what, what is so true about us, so true about our Instagram lives, but our own lives, is that in self-justification, we want to tell a glory story. We want to tell a story that, that shows us climbing this up, up, up trajectory that we've believed since the beginning and that we've always, uh, we've always stuck to and we've landed. And it just doesn't happen that way in life, apparently. I mean, um, and I'm not just talking about cancer or addiction, um, but little things. We, we don't see that in, in little ways we co-opt our stories. Um, you know, there's these little sidelong comments you say to your spouse. I don't know anything about that, but some people do it. Or, or the inner cynic who, like, walks people, watches people walk by and judges, you know, like, oh, there's a classic, you know, like, big-haired Texas woman. Um, or, or, like, the fact that when the lights are out and everybody's gone to bed, you happen to sneak back in and cram a bag of Hostess donuts. Like, there's all these little, these little guilts that we, that we sort of slide under the rug in order to tell our glory story. Um, and what ends up happening is that we're either left uh, denying what's really going on in our lives, and we sort of feel like we need to pull it off, um, the story that, that we're projecting to the world, which is what's going on with Chris Heron, um, or despair, where we, we realize that we're a lie, and we just throw our hands up and, and enter the cave of sorrow, you know. Um, and interestingly enough, exactly what Keith was saying, this is the promise of the cross. I mean, this is where Christianity finds its power, because otherwise, this is the end of the road here. Like, we've walked down the road to despair, we're in our cave of sorrow, just like Moses, and we're eating our bag of Cheetos, and we're wondering what life is even for. But miraculously, the hope of the gospel is in this precise moment. Um, and so um, it's amazing to me that in these moments where we hit rock bottom, that the power of the gospel actually lands in our lives. So I'm going to show the next clip of Chris Heron um, just a little... Uh, a little fill-in for, for what happened in between. So he's playing for the Celtics. Uh, in two separate occurrences, he's found unconscious in his car, um, having crashed into a light pole, and uh, because he's, he's now developed a heroin addiction. And his wife still doesn't know about it. Um, he's kept it that hidden. Uh, he's traveled the world playing uh, professional basketball, and in all these countries, he's found a dope dealer. Um, and so now he is uh, back in his hometown. Uh, he's completely reached uh, rock bottom. And he's about to be um, taken into a rehab clinic for the second time. Uh, he's, he's taken out of the police station, and he's thinking about how he's going to kill himself because he has entered that cave of sorrow. He's totally despairing. And this is what happens. You know, the best option for me, I was tired, man. I was tired of dragging my kids through the mud. I was tired of dragging my wife through the mud. I didn't could care less about me anymore. And uh, I said, I'm going to end my life today. 
And as I was walking out of that emergency room, this woman touched me on the shoulder and said, I know your mom. My mom had died four years before. And she said, I'm going to get you help today because that's what you need. I remember coming up this driveway. I, I have five, six days sober. Still shaky, still going through withdrawals. And I remember getting out and grabbing my bags. My wife coming around and walking up this to this doorway. And a counselor telling her, don't say anything, you just have to turn around and go home. And I could have no more contact with her from that moment on. And I walked into that TC and they handed me a toothbrush and said, you know, you're on floor duty to clean the floors. Kids were coming up to me, 18-year-olds were coming up to me, yelling at me and telling me I need to tuck my shirt and I need to do this, I need to do that. And I was looking at them like, you guys are crazy, man. Like, this, is, this isn't me. I'm bigger than this, thinking I'm bigger than this. There's no way I, I can do this. Got a phone call. I had been in treatment for 45 days. And I got a phone call that my wife was going into labor. Every counselor in here told me, you need to only go for a couple of hours. Hop in the van, go home, see your son, get back in the van, and come back. So I told the counselors, that's not happening, my man. I'm, I'm going home, and I'm going to spend a couple of days with my wife and my kids, because I got this. I went home, I watched my son be born, walked out of the hospital to go smoke a cigarette. And my ass kept walking right to the liquor store. I was 45 days sober, walked right to the liquor store, swigged some vodka, threw my kids in the car, went home, got high that night, and started this whole over again. When I walked back in the hospital that next morning, my wife looked at me, she, she shook her head, and she said, you can't be here. Go back to treatment, or don't come back to me ever again. I walked into that treatment center under the influence, and this little man about this big grabbed me by my shirt and said, why don't you do the most courageous, noble thing that you can ever do? Pick up the phone tonight, call your wife, call your kids, and say you're never going to see him again. Because all you are is you're a ball and chain, and every time you come around, you sink them, and you go away, and they get better, then you come back, and you drown them again. So you're just going to disappear. I laid in bed thinking that I might make that phone call. I might call my wife. I might call my kids and tell them I'm no good for them. And good luck. Finally, that next morning, they were, they were discussing whether or not I was going to be welcomed back here. And uh, they put me in the pot sink. probably the best punishment anyone can ever get. This little spot. From 5.30 in the morning to 10 at night, I could go to no area but this one. I had to wash dishes for the whole family for like 20 days. And that little room is where I had to find my soul. You know, that little room is where I had to sit by myself for hours and hours and hours and say to myself, am I a dad, am I a husband, you know, am I a son, or am I a junkie? Some people 
go on retreats. Some people meditate. I got the pot scene. I found myself in this place. seven, eight months sober, I had no idea what I was going to do to feed my family. Jay, good shot. Let's go. Good passes. A friend of mine in recovery suggested that I teach basketball. Good move. Good shot. Good move. Don't worry about it. I believe every kid deserves to play. Every kid deserves to feel good about themselves. There you go. That's nice. That's the best part about it. You're good at this. There you go. That's what I'm talking about, B. When I see Chris coaching today, I feel with all my heart that this is what was supposed to happen. This is what Chris was meant to do. Good. Chris is able to give what he wasn't given. And I think that's why it is so fulfilling to him. I think uh, Chris's greatest talent in life is what he's doing now, is helping people, and particularly kids. The way he was able to just grab them, tell them to believe in themselves and to not give up. And he was treating these kids as if they were his younger brother. And he never met these kids before. And that's a gift. I mean, I don't have it. He, he has that. I find a, a certain peace with what I do today. I didn't find that peace in, in basketball. I never did. I don't believe that it was my destiny. I see Chris happier than when I knew him in sixth grade. Now he's more alive than I've ever seen him in my entire life. You know, he's... He's who he's supposed to be, you know? And I'm so proud of him. <laughs> Can you stop it there? Okay. Um, oh, man. We could just go home. I mean, it's just, it's, it just makes me cry every time. Um, yeah, it's, it's amazing. It's not the story he would have imagined for himself. Uh, it's not the story that, um, that, culture at large would have uh, pictured for him, um, but instead it's, it's, um, it's the descendant story. It's the one that, um, that, that moves down before it moves up, and, um, and in fact, it's the right story. The, the basketball story was never his story. It was just the beginning of, um, of, of the story that, he, like his wife said, this is, this is what he's supposed to be doing. This is, this is it. This is his purpose. Um, but he had to go to the cross before he could find uh, that that was it. He had to die. Um, so what ends up happening is that um, in the same way that we did this sort of story deconstruction last night, our stories uh, need to be deconstructed. You know, all the various Sean Davises that we have constructed for our lives um, just in the same way that Aaron talked about Moses, they have to be um, they have to be shattered, and and they have to be they have to take us to a place where we have no idea what's going to be 
what's going to become of us. Um, one of my favorite writers is Francis Spufford. And in this little passage, he's talking about um, that, that phrase we so often like to talk about, um, that as Christians, we believe that humans want to be fully known and fully loved. And he said, um, a lot of times, that I mean, it's so true that we want to be fully known and fully loved, but being fully known, being actually known for who you are is a terrifying, uh, is a terrifying thing. So I'm going to read this uh, really quickly. He does this really great thing where he turns this little light of mine on its head, you know, like, I'm going to carry this light through the world and show it. But instead, he's saying, no, that's the light of God, which shows you who you are. On one level, I can feel that this is absolutely safe. A parent's safe hold is nothing compared to this. I'm being carried on the universe's shoulder. But on another level, it's terrifying. Being screened off by my separateness is all I know in my dealings with somebodies who look at me. This is utterly exposed, and while it may be safe, it is not kind in one of the primary ways in which human beings set about being kind to each other. It takes no account at all of my illusions about myself. It lays me out roofless, wallless, worse than naked. It knows where my kindness comes checkered with secret cruelties or mockeries. It knows where my love comes with reservations. It knows where I hate and fear and despise. It knows what I indulge in. It knows what parasitic colonies of habit I have allowed to form in me. It knows the best of me, which may well be not what I am proud of, and the worst of me, which is not what it has occurred to me to be ashamed of. It knows what I have forgotten. It knows all this, and it shines at me. In fact, it never stops shining. It is continuous, this attention it pays. I cannot make it turn away. And Spufford notes after this that, of course, we can turn away from it, and that's, that's what we do. Uh, we, we so easily turn away from it. And as soon as our images are shattered and they fall, uh, it, fall around us, it's so much easier just to throw up new images, you know, just to throw up new projections of who we should be and who we want to be. Um, but what he's also saying is that this knowledge can sound like the beginning of good news. As terrifying as it sounds to have everything dragged out of the closet, all our private misdemeanors, all our egocentric motivations, it's, it's also the best thing that could ever happen to us. Because we don't have to lie anymore. We don't have to fit the script. We don't have to pull it off. Instead, we just stand as we are, knowing completely what we're capable of, and there's freedom in that. And it's, this isn't just semantics. I mean, this is the gospel storyboard. You know, fully known means being completely um, taken away from all the credentials that you give yourself. Being, being, all those things being sh uh, shed from you. And, and that being a kind of death whereby comes the resurrection. Um, so... What this ends up meaning for our lives is that the requirement of optimism, like feeling the need to be optimistic about our story or the story that God is telling us in our lives, is that we can actually say, I don't know. I have no idea what's going on, and this really sucks right now. 
We don't have to tell the up, up, up story because that is not the story of Christianity. The story of Christianity is death and resurrection. Um, And there is the freedom to actually be who we are and not who we can be and nothing more. Uh, There's this guy, Charles Williams. Um, He was one of the inklings, you know, with C.S. Lewis and J.R. Tolkien. Um, He was asked what he thinks of the cross of Christ, and this is what he wrote. It's, yeah, here it is. We are relieved, may one say, from the burden of being naturally optimistic. The whole of creation groaneth and travaileth together. If we are to rejoice always, then it must be a joy consonant with that. We need not, infinite relief, force ourselves to deny the mere burden of breathing. Life, experience suggests, is a good thing, and somehow unendurable. At least the Christian faith has denied neither side of the paradox. Life found itself unendurable. The cross, where our salvation comes in the blood of a God we killed, puts God's saving action in human blunder, in the ways that we mess up. It is proof that our blunders, in fact, become the the crucial parts of our story. And he goes on to say that one of the gifts of the gospel is that our experiences of good need not be separated from our experiences of evil. They need not and they must not be. Um, So I want to close just thinking about, um, there's this parable, the wheat and the tares, or the wheat and the weeds, and um, Jesus says that there's like, you know, this landowner, and he's growing his crop, his prize crop that is their livelihood, and the farmers see that the, the wheat is growing up with weeds, and, um, and the farmers kind of freak out. They say, like, oh, my gosh, we need to, we need to like, separate the weeds because if we don't, it's going to choke out the crop, and there goes our crop. So they're actually thinking like good farmers, but the landowner says, just let it be. Leave it alone because you're going to get confused, and you're going to pull out the wheat too. You're going to think that what is good is actually bad, And you're going to confuse it, and you're going to pull out everything that we have. So let it all grow, and we'll sort it out at the end. But just let it go. Let it go. (laughs) Um, And that, I mean, that's uh, that's the talk, you know? Like, don't don't curate. Don't think about, like, uh, what's right about me and what's wrong about me. Uh, Instead, let it all grow together in the grace of God. And let God handle the details. Um, all right, so uh, this one last paragraph. Um, this, is, um, this is just, I mean, it's so funny that, like, in all of the moments where, like, our lives feel like something terrible is afoot, and there's something that, um, that, we, that we need to run from, and we're thinking, like, how do I tell my story? How do we tell our story? How, how do I sift through this tangled mess of my life and create a narrative? Um, I mean, frankly, I think it's okay not to know what your story is. Um, much like a character and less like a story writer. You are just, you're not the character either. You're not the main character of God's story. You are a character in God's story. 
of death and resurrection. And, and what good news that is, because in the moments of great suffering, when it feels like, man, this is a terrible story move, um, that, that you can say, like, well, I'm not the writer. Like, I didn't pick out where this is going. Um, and that we can tell that honestly to the world, you know, uh, and not have to be like chipper, chipper, up, up, up people. Um, it also gives us great hope, knowing the good news of death and resurrection, that in the midst of what feels like a terrible story move, that something greater is afoot. And that this isn't the end of the story, but instead, it's the beginning of what Jesus says um, is a new creation. Uh, so I'll stop there. Um, I'd love to pray, and because I'm an Episcopalian, I'd love to read the, the collect, the prayer for, um, for this upcoming Palm Sunday. So um, if you'll pray with me. Almighty and everlasting God, who of thy tender love towards mankind has sent thy Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, to take upon him our flesh and to suffer death upon the cross, that all mankind should follow the example of his great humility. Mercifully grant that we may both follow the example of his patience and also be made partakers of his resurrection. Through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with thee in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Thank you.